Hello, Belinda. Hi, Omar. What is this week's gratitude blooming theme? It's card number 22, Rose of Sharon, representing inexhaustible abundance. It's your word. It's abundance. Just like we talked about in our last podcast, just how the sunflower dances with the sun, how, you know, nature uh, is an opportunity for us to just sort of experience the sublime today with the Rose of Sharon, we get to experience what does abundance feel like? Yeah. And in this card, we've got two twos and two flowers. So we're kind of uh, on a roll here with uh, our cards with uh, pears. This is a great flower just because it, I feel like it's come up it just evoked such interesting conversations in some of our previous um, podcasts, you know, because this is the national flower of Korea. And it just, I, f- I feel like when a country says, hey, this flower represents us, um, you know, there's some real significance there um, that, you know, it's not just any sort of ordinary flower, but it really is tied to sort of myth and culture and, and expression of, of symbol of who we are. And I love how abundantly they grow on uh, the big island of Hawaii. So I literally am surrounded by them uh, this summer and they really are so open and they're so colorful. And when you see them, you can't help but just smile. Because they just have this brightness to them. And I love the prompt that uh, goes with this card because it's kind of more like an affirmation than a reflective question. It goes, you have everything. Wait, it goes, you already have everything you need. Do you believe it? that just trusting and sense of perspective. Um, And I was just, you know, I was, as we were getting ready for the podcast and, you know, we have our ritual of listening to the theme song um, to just help get us grounded um, each and every time. And I was just thinking about how little change in perspective can just open up that feeling of, abundance that it sometimes like abundance doesn't actually need to be a big thing it's just it's there we just need like a better angle in which to see it um and and just so then it's really comes back so often to perspective and where you're standing yeah you kind of have to notice the abundance to believe it right and it's all around us (laughs) yeah and then it's just sometimes we we get we have like those blinders that they put on horses and we're like, oh, you know, I can't see to my left or my right. And so we can only see what's in front of us. And sometimes abundance requires us to sort of actually just look around in a different way. Arlene, what is coming up for you revisiting the flower and the theme as you remix this art in digital form? Yeah, well, well, what you were saying, Belinda, about the Rose of Sharon just being abundant in its blooms, it reminds me of um, a potted plant that I had from my mother that was a Rose of Sharon. And you're right, I was 
constantly surprised that there was another flower. I was like, how can there be another flower? Um, and how do they stay blooming as long as they do? So it's a nice memory. But I have to say that th this drawing was a little bit harder for me to do. And um, I have a little story to share with you about it, um, about what I went through just creating it this week. I love these behind the scenes perspectives. <laughs> See what I did there. <laughs> the abundance theme featuring the Rose of Sharon flower is another theme that has felt a bit difficult to work on. I think it's hard to emerge out of the turmoil of the last few years with a feeling of abundance. Though in some ways, the pandemic did force us to scale back our ways of living to the bare minimum and to recalibrate what we really need or want in our lives. And then, how can you feel abundance when there has been so much loss in so many of our lives? I really don't have an answer. But maybe that's why it can be so helpful to have the reminders and prompts in the gratitude blooming themes and cards to fall back on when you need them. They can help remind us to keep asking the questions and keep seeking the clarity, to keep showing up just like these plants and flowers do in the natural world. It's almost like the practice of showing up is what is required to really know what abundance and so many of the other themes we cover in the cards, what they mean to us in our lives. So this week's art really is nothing more than just showing up to see what arrives. And maybe not so surprisingly, I think it's when you start to show up that the abundance within you and your life starts to show up too. So many things swirling right now. Just think I'm keying in on the word belief and or to believe and and sort of two very different directions. One direction is if you've watched the uh, show on Apple, I think uh, with Ted Lasso, there's a sign in the locker room that says believe. And that's really sort of a mantra for the team is to believe um, in who they are and who they can be as a team. Um, and then I think I've shared this poem before, but it's, I found it probably, gosh, 20 plus years ago on a pottery wall up in Bellingham in the Pacific Northwest. And it, it's one of the only few poems that I know by heart. And it's an anonymous one. And it goes, in search of answers, I sought God. In search of God, I sought faith. In search of faith, I sought to believe. In search of belief, I sought truth. And in search of truth, I asked questions. And I've always just sort of appreciated that journey of like discovery of like, hey, I, I want some answers or I want some abundance. And, and it's all there, but what are sort of the questions? What are the perspectives? What, you know, what is the lens that we're looking through to help us actually uh, go through that process? And literally, the art, the digital art, it looks like there's confetti being sprinkled over the two rows of Sharon flowers. And the one that's open and 
blooming is kind of receiving the confetti of, you know, confetti of insights, confetti of perspective. And, and yeah, it's, uh, you can really just feel that. Like for me, it's like, when have I been truly open to receive in that way of like unattached, uh, openness and when do I feel a little bit more closed and it's interesting because the smaller Rose of Sharon is 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 closed and it's starting to open so it's like kind of capturing all the phases that can happen at any given moment around openness to receiving and it's interesting how it's sort of similar to the sunflower from the art last week where it is two flowers and you're sort of seeing the front and the back of these two flowers and just and I I totally love as soon as you said confetti what it it made me kind of think of is like you know in a in movies sometimes they'll create that like dream sequence and it kind of starts to shimmer I feel like all of a sudden you adding just the simple circles and I love that you're playing with these organic forms and then these geometric forms uh, and smashing them together which then makes it feel like even more of like a dreamlike state because it doesn't have to be kind of this linear kind of like oh this is realism and this is fantasy it's just like no this is just perspective I I love all the new perspectives that I get hearing you talk about the art too so that's um, a real pleasure for me to, to be able to receive that Hey Belinda I love that we're growing more gratitude in the world. And part of the way that we're doing that is collaborating with other podcasts, including Better Place Project. Uh, I was recently on the show uh, talking about gratitude with Steve Norris. He and I got to talking about how do we just help promote and share what we want to see in the world. So yeah, we invite you to check out Better Place Project, where each week They shine a light on amazing humans doing extraordinary things who share their knowledge with us on how we can be living healthier, happier, and more purposeful lives, which is in such alignment with this whole podcast of collective acceleration through gratitude, nature, and art. So to add a little more joy and inspiration to your day, head over and subscribe to Better Place Project wherever you get your podcasts. It couldn't be more fitting Omar, that we have our guest for this episode being someone that you have known for a long time back in college. And I have to say, besides Mario from the trust episode, uh, Taj is another person that has come up a lot in our conversations. And I'm so glad that you brought him on the show to really talk about what that means to him. I mean, personally and professionally. So could you share a little bit about Taj, how you know each other, and just give our listeners an introduction to his full spectrum, his all the aspects of what Taj represents? So as you said, Taj and I have known each other since college in the sort of early mid-90s. And he was at Stanford, I was at UC Davis, and we, we had a, a shared passion around uh, the environment and... but particularly through a lens of being people of color. And so sort of how do we think about environmental justice and the environment isn't just sort of out there saving polar bears that we want to save polar bears. It's also sort of in cities and, you know, communities and on blocks and neighborhoods. Um, 
And so we were on a national, I think it was the largest student environmental group in the country. And we both were on the board and we were very active. Um, and we lost a lot of the things that we were sort of fighting for uh, in the early mid nineties here in California. And we ended up taking two very different paths. And I think maybe a year or so ago, I reached out to him. Like we were friends on Facebook, but hadn't really communicated in 20 plus years. And this is kind of a funny way that we reconnected. So I was in um, Maui reading Adrian Marie Brown's book, uh, Emergent Strategy, which I highly, highly recommend um, for anyone that really wants to understand what does sort of, how do we create social change in today's world? And Adrian Marie Brown, AMB, like wrote this book on the large part in Maui. And it was really about sort of a lot of the social justice movement building that's happened over the last 20 years. And Taj's name was all over this book. And he um, has been one of the principal architects of a lot of social change um, efforts here in the United States. And so I was like, oh, wow, it's so cool to see Taj's name in this book. And on one of our family sort of trips, we went on the road to Hana, which if anybody knows is sort of super windy, you cross like 300 plus bridges and, you know, pretty a wild ride for, for better, or for worse. We were there during the pandemic. So there weren't a lot of cars, but it's still a windy road. And we were listening though to an audio tape uh, to sort of explain what we were saying. And one of the things that was pointed out was this rainbow eucalyptus grove. And so we got out of our cars and we went to go look at this grove and these rainbow eucalyptus trees are just, as you might imagine, they, they really in some ways look like all the graphical images that uh, Arlene has with these circles. They're greens, they're blues, there's reds, there's yellows. And it's just this beautiful bark that as it peels, even more colors are um, emerging. And then we get back to the place that we're staying and my youngest daughter's like, dad, we have a, uh, a rainbow eucalyptus tree right in front of our window. And I was like, oh my God, it's so amazing. And then that day or the next, Taj posts on Facebook an article on rainbow eucalyptus trees. Just he didn't even like <laughs> say anything about it. It was just a random Synchronicity article. strikes again. <laughs> Synchronicity. And so I was like, you know, maybe I should reach out to Taj for some reason. And so but I was like, well, let me wait. And so, you know, a week or so later, we're back in L.A., Monday morning, I get alerts about sneakers um, and <laughs> I get an email from New Balance that they just dropped a rainbow eucalyptus oh edition gosh. sneaker. <laughs> and I was Strike like, three what? from the universe. Right. And so I reached out to Taj and I was like, hey, man, it's been forever since you and I have connected, but I just, it would be awesome to catch up. And what we found is that in many ways, we've lived each other's lives in reverse order over the last 20 years and like how we thought about social change and where we sort of put our efforts. And so in many ways we've ended up in very similar places, um, but we took totally different paths to get there. <laughs> like he said, brothers from different mothers. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, from like thinking about spiritual practices to finance um, and everything uh, in between. Yeah. And one of the, most interesting uncoverings of these conversations has been really understanding how people find their own purpose, starting from 
their childhood. I've been really struck by, you know, all these episodes we've had. It kind of goes back to childhood in a lot of cases, forming the path towards someone's purpose in life. And we're going to hear in, in, with, in Taja's words, you know, how did his upbringing really shape these passions that he's found to in his adult life and learned to weave together? So um, Taj Rashad James, um, uh, I sprouted uh, out of the out of my parents in the dirt in a in, in Santa Barbara Ventura Chumash territory. Um, my dad is uh, came to California from Alabama, brought here by his uncle to to sort of uh, stay alive and escape the racism of Alabama that he was experiencing. And my mom, uh, you know, the, the child of of uh, her grandparents were all immigrants from from uh, Scandinavia and Italy and farmers in the Midwest who found their way to California. And my parents, you know, met in the late 60s in Southern California and and uh, fell in love. And and I came out of that that connection. Um, and so they were both like profoundly spiritual people, but also community people um, and uh, civil rights movement people and you know, uh, civil rights, black power, all that good stuff. Uh, uh, um, they may or may not have been involved in burning down the bank that my mother worked at in Santa Barbara when my dad was a student there. Um, so I grew up in a household in which like the spiritual and the political were one thing, not two thing, like the way, like the, the way the front and the back of my hand are one thing, not two thing. Like I can think about my left hand and my right hand, if I'm confused as two things, right. That have to figure out how they come into a relationship. But if, you know, if I put my left hand on the stove and it's hot, my right hand will come immediately to its aid without thought or contemplation, right? Because they're actually um, experiencing their oneness, but, but in our minds, right. We can kind of think about things that are one as two. So, you know, as, as, a, as a young person who pretty early on, I was like, oh, the world is full of suffering. I'm not sure if I really want to be here five or six. I was a strange kid. I was like, well, maybe I'll just fix the world and then maybe I'll live in it. So from about the age of six, I was like, I'm going to fix the world. It's broken. There's too much suffering. There's too much pain. I see people who love each other harming each other. This is a terrible place. I'm not sure I want to be here. I... I'm so struck by how when he was six years old, he already felt the suffering of the world. I mean, that's just wild how he just knew that. And and the spiritual and the political were already so embedded in his life and his in his context and in his perspective. And it takes me back to the Rose of Sharon illustration, how there's two, but it's actually part of one whole plant. Fascinating how easily the mind can separate things uh, and how much of a practice it is to see uh, the oneness, uh, the similarity, and, and, and how it's easy to kind of focus on difference. Um, and really, it's not. Um, and also, it's interesting that In last week's podcast with Effie, as we were talking about reverence, she 
went back to her six-year-old self and her connection to rural Virginia and, and being able to walk to school and, and have a garden that sort of uh, was abundant enough um, for her plant, her family to eat from just, I don't even remember what country I was living in, honestly, when I was six years old, I I traveled so much as a little kid that I'm like, I am like kind of struggling a little bit to just even remember. I'm like, I think I was back in the United States and, you know, and I just, it is fascinating to then just sort of think about like, what are those really early impressions that shape our feeling of abundance or scarcity? So how does the six-year-old go on their mission and really live into that? You know, we're going to fast forward to college, which is, you know, when you and Omar, you and Taj really intersected. So how does Taj then define this mission in his 20s? Went to college with the intention that I was going to be a philosophy and religious studies major. Got there and I was told that these two things that for me were one were two, that like my commitment to consciousness and spiritual awakening and depth and my commitment to social justice, those were not just two things, but they were two things in conflict in a binary. And I had to choose one or the other. I could sort of choose the, choose the political and the material, or I could choose the spiritual because the political and the material, the spiritual and the material were on an oppositional binary and they were not the front and back of my hand. They were my right hand at war with my left hand. And I had to pick, figure out which hand I want. I liked best, but I chose my right hand. I chose uh, Cabral over the Buddha. And I said, Oh, I'm going to be a community organizer. And it's interesting how, when we live in the world of abundance, there is no this versus that it just, we can receive all of it. And in many ways it's taken us, 20 years to reconcile that, you know, and if you think about all the times we say like, oh, you have to choose this or choose that. And I think I go to the Yogi Berra and he says, there's a fork in the road. I think Yogi Berra said, just pick it up, right? Like (laughs) just pick the fork up. Don't, don't think about these arbitrary um, choice points. And I can remember myself as a college student having that activist fire and just, my blinders were on. All I could see were the problems in the in the world. So I could really resonate with his passion to solve the inequities. Um, you know, there is something really inspiring about that youth. You know, when you're a youth and you just feel like, oh, anything is possible and, you know, we can fix this and and then you learn, you know, how to see uh, things in less uh, black or white. I think for me, that's been a big learning is how do I not get into that judgment of this is good, this is bad, uh, you know, when faced with a life struggle or even just looking at our systems right now. It's hard to not um, only focus on the inequities. So I was really interested in how he navigated that, you know, spirituality versus social movements and political systems. They are very different energies, (laughs) but, you know, they're here to help us navigate this journey of human evolution, I guess. So as Taj started to navigate the social movement tradition, he learns a lot about 
the self as well as the collective. So we're going to hear a bit about that reflection. So that was the sort of, you know, movement tradition I came up in and did that work for a while and then became a local community organizer and, and did all that thing. And then, and then realized like after doing that for a little while that um, our social change movements, our organizing movements, um, we essentially, you know, had three, three problems and challenges. Like we were fighting back against all the bad things we didn't want, but we, we couldn't really articulate a transformative vision for what we did want. And the way that we treated ourselves and each other had nothing to do with any liberatory or transformative vision. Like the movement was a sort of a circling, uh, a circular firing squad, or as people like to say now, it was sort of endemic with, with cancel culture. Like, you know, this person arguing with this person and this, like just the, the culture and social change movements was, and unfortunately remains in many ways, like highly toxic and self-destructive. Right. And, 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 um, and we couldn't really figure out how to work together because though we were trying to create movements, everyone was sort of locked in what we can kind of think of as like a organizational individualism, right? We have this, this, this curse of individualism born out of the lie of separation supremacy that we then apply to how do we operate as a family within the principles of individualism? How do we operate as an organization within the principles of individualism? How do we operate as a collaboration through the principles of individualism, right? So it's like we've managed to apply the principles of individualism to forms of collective organization, which is a feat of, it's a disastrous feat, but we, we got pretty good at that. So anyway. I think this is one of the principles that we talked um, with Mario about in Web3, which is how do we hold autonomy and interdependence together, right? So we have this sort of great understanding of individualism, um, which is in some ways uh, autonomy is an element of that. But then there's this other em- element, which is we're interdependent. Um, and, you know, and it's just, it's like we said with like the two flowers, we can look at two flowers, but they grow out of the same stem. Um, and so how do we sort of bring together a change in perspective, um, that really allows us, uh, to see we have all that we need and we don't need to like sort of take that scarcity mindset that individualism tends to sort of breed from. And how a vision for the future is not about focusing on the problems that we want to solve. It's actually about imagining the collective and the whole. Like, how does that look when it's all of it is thriving? I was really focusing on how um, that then he was describing how it leads to people canceling each other out and writing each other off. And then it's the opposite of harmony and wholeness. It it's, becomes the th- very thing that we don't want to do, which is separate. And uh, it makes me think of this one experience I actually had with the Rose of Sharon. I was so in awe of its beauty, it was, you know, and I was like, oh, I want to bring it into the house. So I plucked, I asked for permission from the flower, and it seemed like it was a yes, and I plucked it from its bush and I laid it on this table that I have all of my, you know, sacred objects where I like to meditate. And I just laid this single flower right there. And I was just so in awe of its beauty. And 
I came back to look at it again five minutes later and had started to wilt. And it was just this really strong, visceral lesson around how this flower is abundant when it's with its source. It's with everyone else in community. It does not thrive alone. And it literally like shriveled up in like 10 minutes. It's just like... (laughs) What happens when we cut ourselves off? Yeah, community is what nourishes us. So this is an interesting point in Taj's journey. And Omar, you're so good in these conversations of just getting, asking people to get to that critical point, that inflection point that then like changes the whole scene. So we're going to feature that part of his story. And I was like, do I, do I leave this body and just go back to where I came from? Because I really didn't want to be here in the first place. And I spent, since I was six years old, trying to fix this place. And it's more broken than it was when I started. So what, like, what the heck am I doing here? Or what do I do? So I went to South Africa, spent some time with people there. I went to, and I went to Plum Village to spend time with, uh, with, uh, the venerable, venerable Thich Han and the, uh, uh, community of monks and nuns at Plum Village, and I was there for three months, and I just said, hey, this was a tradition born at the intersection of um, peace and conflict, right? Literally a tradition created by people who went out into villages after they were bombed to support the people in those villages to to survive and thrive in the midst of a war. And that's where this tradition um, was forged. Um, and so I had a thought that I might be able to learn something from that. Um, there were sort of three things I came out of that with. I was towards the end of my time there. There was a, a monastic who's, who's, who's one of just the most beautiful chanters in the community. And if you, if you listen to any recordings of, of, uh, chanting from Plum Village, you will hear, uh, this brother's voice. And, you know, we were, we were on a walk and he just, said something to me that really shook me. Just, you know, there is a river of love flowing for you night and day. And that, those words and that like transmission, like I felt in a way that I hadn't felt before because I was living so that everybody else could know how much they were loved. But I didn't know that I was loved or that I was deserving of that love. So the notion that like that river of love was flowing and flowing for me, right? That that sense of like, I am here because I'm here and I belong here, like in this body, in this place, like fundamentally and unshakably, like I got an experience of that. Like, and I got a transmission of that and I felt it in a way but I hadn't ever felt it before in my life. There is a river of life flowing for you night and day. That's it's always been there for him. And it took that moment for him to see that it was there. Wow. There's this uh, great quote from Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., who I feel like in many ways is embodying that paradox that Taj initially saw, which was like, hey, I can think about the spiritual 
Um, or I can think about the political, right? I can think about the immaterial, or I can think about the material. And 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 Dr. King and so many others like him uh, have shown us that we don't always have to think uh, in those ways. And Dr. King said, what is needed is a realization that power without love is reckless and abusive, and that love without power is sentimental and anemic. Power at its best is love implementing the demands of justice. Justice at its best is love correcting everything that stands against love. And so often we sort of think, oh, is it love or power? And we make these binaries. And really, you know, what the great kind of leaders do is to show like, no, this is the front of your hand and the back of your hand, right? Like these things are part and parcel to each other. And so how do we actually, you know, we have to treat these wounds and these pains holistically um, and not through separation. There can be love even in the war. So much of activism, it's like you're fighting it's like hard to make space in your heart for love and you're bringing both of those energies together. And that's really, you know, partly why I took a different path because I felt that sort of very, as Taj said, cancel culture. It was like this way or the highway. And, you know, and, and a friend of mine said to me, you know, Omar, it is easier to fight against things than to fight for things. And that really always stayed with me is like, do I want to be on the side of saying no or do I want to be in the practice of finding yes, right? And that practice of finding yes to me is like, that comes from a place of love, right? Like with the, And a place of abundant love, right? Like, oh, I'm not just going to love what is good for me, what is good for my family, but what is that sort of bigger love that sort of says like, how do we sort of recognize that we all belong? And you can't recognize that you belong until you can see that river of love floating, flowing for you day and night, right? Like it's, everything can be around you to tell you that, but you have to be able to see it, ready to see it and receive it. So what was that big leap then after this realization for Taj? What does he do next? Two things I came out of Plum Village with. Be kind and pay attention. <laughs> I know, and and really... You have to be kind to yourself first, because the thing that I had missed since I was six was like, I was doing this on behalf of other people, but I didn't include myself in the circle, right? So be kind to yourself and pay attention. And if you can do those two things, everything else will take care of itself. So that was, that was sort of, and, and so I decided to, you know, make the leap. Like I'm here, I'm in this body, I'm staying in this body. Do I want to stay in this monastery? No. I think, I think my contribution, my purpose is in the, to being in the world in a different way. So I, you know, came back into the world and I like did all the things I said I was never going to do. I partnered, <laughs> I married, I had children because I wasn't like, I was never going to have children. I was like, this world is a horrible place. Why would I bring people into it? I brought two beautiful, amazing human beings into a world that I did not actually want to be in because it's like, if you're going to leave, leave, if you're going to stay, you got to live. You got to, you got to like, you got to, you got to go, you just got to go for it. If you got to live, if you're going to live, 
You got to go for it. <laughs> I feel like he's embodying that spirit of the of the Rose of Sharon. Like, just throw up that confetti. You got to just do it. Ain't no half stepping. <laughs> you just got to go in, <laughs> all in. Uh, and he did. And, they, you know, and he went and launched the Movement Strategy Center, which really was the epicenter for a lot of organizing strategies across the country. And, you know, and then he went on to really recognize the importance of finance and, and resources and like, how do we structure these things in a way that holds love and power together? Right. Like sometimes people are like, Oh, I want social change. And, you know, and they're like, but they don't want to talk about money sometimes. Um, and it's just like, no, we have to like learn to sort of embrace all aspects of life uh, holistically. And how the activism and social change work, the movement making the creation of new paradigms ultimately had to be nourished by this love for self and that he was doing all these things for other people, but he wasn't a part of that circle. And how it's not sustainable because you're cut off from that source that, that creates the aliveness. Well, it's just that recognition that we are part of it, right? It's just sort of the same thing as like to talk about nature and to not recognize that we are part of nature is to then miss the, one of the great parts of nature is that we're part of it. We get to play. We get to dance in this space, you know? Um, and that, that is part of the gift that we've been given. My, my challenge has been not the humility part, but the dignity part. So it was the, 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 the problems of the world were not just my responsibility. They were my fault. Hmm. Like, like there's something fundamentally wrong with me. That's why the world is broken. I'm fixing the world to fix myself because like, I live in a body that's been dehumanized in very specific ways. And I internalized that system of dehumanization, right? So when you live in a hierarchy of value that says some people have more value than you, the system is designed for you to believe that, which is why you don't have to be white to be a white supremacist, <laughs> right? Because all you have to do to be a white supremacist is to believe in the construct of whiteness in the hierarchy of human value and to live into that lie, right? So if you embody that lie, then there's something wrong with you when you don't meet that standard. So, so every binary, right? Right, wrong, good, bad, light, dark, right? Every binary is a spectrum. Every spectrum is a wheel. Each wheel is a web and a spiral, except when it's not on the road to awareness defaults to complexity and paradox. So, so my life has been about, and, and, and what all true spiritual practice is about is about the transcending of the binary way to see reality as it is, which is reality is non-binary in every way. Reality is non-binary, right? And if you have a binary and a construct and, and you com and you have a binary, in which you, you insert a hierarchy of value, then you have systems of domination, violence, and control, right? Because binary. So the question of like humility in terms of is it my fault? Everything is my fault. I take over responsibility for every problem in every relationship. That was more 
my problem. I was more out of balance to that direction. So I canceled myself in the cancel culture. I canceled myself on a regular basis. I think this is where, again, taking inspiration from nature and, and we think sometimes through a very specific lens of a keystone species, right? Like, or where you are on the food chain and that creates this sort of hierarchy of value, right? Whales are worth more than sardines, you know, like a big oak tree, you know, is more valuable than a rose of Sharon. And I think what nature sort of shows us is that no, in an ecosystem, all of these things are interconnected. They all have a role to play, right? Like think about just, you know, the pandemic, how it sort of shifted the world. Literally this little virus uh, has transformed everything. And so I think when we sort of realize that, you know, it isn't about big or small or, um, you know, this value, light, dark, like male, female, we've created all these sort of hierarchy of values. And it's just like, no, we need each other. And there's a lot more sort of also in the spectrum of those things too now. Yeah. And just how we can really breathe that separation into our bodies and cancel ourselves out in the process. So I really appreciate how as a leader, leading so many of these movements, he was able to say, hey, I did it to myself and I see that and I'm going to shift that relationship with myself. How do we dance with ourselves? (laughs) Yes. Maybe there is something around those two flowers, Rose of Sharon. It's two. It is. It's, it's all the, all one, all these facets of ourselves. How do we embrace them? As we were winding down with the conversation, you know, I could feel so such a big wave of emotion, you know, the intensity of the supremacy and the separation culture. And then there was this moment in the conversation when it became playful and light. And let's just feel that um, insight that Taj has around love for himself and and how to approach the movement culture in this present time. As a sister, uh, uh, Adrian Brown says, like, bring more pleasure to your activism. If you, if you, if you, if you're in an activism construct, you know, let's dance at the revolution. Um, Let's say like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Just, and and to, to, you know, how the sort of Howard Thurman has a, beautiful quote on those lines in terms of just like noticing what lights you up. Like that's what the, what the world needs, what, what brings you joy yep. and to create community in which we are encouraging each other in that way to say like, you are a beautiful and fundamental gift to this world and this community and you have something to offer. And as a young person, let us help you understand what your gifts and strengths are. Let you, let us help you cultivate those gifts and let you, let us, create a way for you to bring those things joyfully forward as a contribution to your joy and our collective joy. Like that is beloved community. That is a core practice of how we don't just survive, but thrive together. And, And that's also rooted in abundance because there's a notion 
that like if there's something that we need to do, there's someone in the circle who's excited to do it. <laughs> and and if there's not, let's find a way for us to do it, but let's find a way to do it together and joyfully, right? So when we have a purpose, one of the questions we can ask ourselves is what kind of energy do we need to cultivate to achieve that purpose and to try to find a practice way that helps us to tap into or cultivate that kind of energy. Joy, joy, joy. <laughs> like, oh my goodness, sometimes we make things so complicated. And, you know, just to, you know, I feel like what Victoria Lures talked about play and how play accelerates change. You think about Effie and her conversation about just the joy of eating blackberries and, you know, squishing them in and Taj just saying, Hey, I'm going, if I'm going to be here, let me be here all here. And, and what is that beloved community that includes me um, that I get to be a part of it. I am valued at, you know, even if there is uh, dehumanization, um, how do I practice humanization? Yeah, the shift from feeling so much suffering to fully embodying individual and collective joy is such a profound shift. What if, what would the world be like if everything was created from that place of joy? Where would be confetti everywhere, colorful confetti. <laughs> and maybe that really is the practice because there is suffering in life. There is pain. There is disappointment. So we don't need to actually spend our time and energy on that because it's going to be there, right? So let's focus on joy because we know there will be pain. We know there is suffering. Um, and But how do we then process that? How do we like take those challenges and how do we transform them? How do we see that sort of love? More than see it, really feel it, right? And to connect to it. As a team, we've been starting to think about how these individual flowers and themes fit into different meta gardens. And we do have a garden of joy where this inexhaustible abundance theme and the Rose of Sharon lives with other themes around joy. So I, it's been beautiful to start to un make meaning of how these plants and themes uh, relate to each other in a garden and and how that can help cultivate a really intentional practice that's just joy that's just celebration and so for this practice for the week as we continue to cultivate our gratitude practice in this season of gratitude i invite you to think of one thing that you're grateful for in your life that you want to celebrate. So we're going to take it to the next level, not just write it down, not just think about it, but really celebrate that thing. Because when you celebrate that thing, it cultivates this aliveness in all of us, in our bodies, in our spirit. And that aliveness can be infectious and other people can feel that joy too and be a part of that dance. 
So for me, I want to celebrate collaboration. The joy of collaborating when you can really be your full self. Sometimes it's less pretty than other days, but just to be able to show up and not worry about being judged. Just feeling that love from pure collaboration. I think there's a gratitude blooming fall celebration party that's going to happen where we're going to have some confetti. <laughs> what about you, Arlene and Omar? What is it that you're, you want to celebrate in this moment or this week? Oh man, that's a, that's a hard one to nail down just to one thing, but I have to say what is really coming up for me in this moment. This is such a beautiful conversation with Taj, who I've not met and who I hope I will have a chance to meet. But that story of there is a river flowing day and night just for you. I love that so much that to me, it, if I had to think of one thing to celebrate, it would be poetry, right? poetry, that those words can, um, they're so simple, and yet they bring so much emotion and meaning, meaning and joy. So that's what's coming up for me. Well, I, I'm taking the idea literally and just imagining the house party that we're going to be able to host. Um, and soon our house will be complete complete and just that feeling of getting to open up our home and welcome people in and give them great food and drink and to celebrate um, it's just been so long since we've been able to do that you know in part because our house was under construction but also because we were in a pandemic and so we had this little bubble and our family has been pretty adamant about its bubble containment but I think uh, it's, it's now way past time to really just pop that bubble and pop that champagne and you know just celebrate well I hope our listeners you take the opportunity to just celebrate something that you're grateful for in your life as it's emerging throughout your week and just share that aliveness with the people around you. Cheers. Cheers. Cheers.